And I want to invite you to turn with me uh, to Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13, once again. And we're right at the very end of the chapter. Uh, you'll find it on page 819 in the, the blue uh, pew Bible. Now we've been taking the book of uh, the Gospel according to Matthew in a couple of different uh, chunks over time, and we, we started back a number of weeks ago with chapter 13, the beginning of chapter 13. And, and so as we've been walking through chapter 13 of Matthew, Jesus has been giving to us theology, in essence. He's been, he's been teaching. He's been teaching about God and teaching about God's kingdom and teaching about what it means, what it looks like to, to live as a part of that kingdom. And it's been glorious in many ways. He's been teaching us by way of a parable. And if you recall, there was one parable in which there was a man who, who found a, a great treasure in a field. It was a field that wasn't his, and so it's a great picture. He, he covered up uh, the treasure so nobody else would see it, and he went off and he, he sold everything that he had and then went back and bought the field so that the treasure would be his. It was that valuable to him. And that is the kingdom of God. That is the kingdom of heaven that we're looking at and that Jesus has been teaching about. It, it is glorious. But at the same time, as we've gone through, uh, there's been this sense that kind of in the background that for those who are in that kingdom, there must be real challenges. There must be real difficulties. Uh, because throughout, even though Jesus has been teaching about the kingdom of God, but in the background there's been this other kingdom, the kingdom of the world. He hasn't said a lot about that, but it's, it's continued to come to the forefront, and we know uh, that it is opposed, directly opposed to the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. Now, in the, the parables that we saw, we heard about it here and there. Think about the, the parable of the wheat and the tares, or the, the weeds. Uh, Jesus said there that uh, in this field there was an enemy who came, and he, he sowed weeds or, or tares among the wheat, and then he left. And so we get this glimpse into this enemy, this uh, other kingdom that's there. But it's still, it's been in the background for the most part. Well, with this morning's passage, there's a transition that takes place. Still in chapter 13, uh, but a, a, a transition from his teaching to Jesus' life and ministry and that of, of others who are aligned with them. And it's at this point that this other kingdom, the opposing kingdom, comes completely to the forefront. Now, before, it's always been there in the background, a pain, suffering, rejection that that kingdom might, be, might bring about uh, in the background. But, but here it is in the forefront because it's clear there will be, there must be a clash between these two kingdoms. Uh, and now... Uh, it's brought out, and it, it, it's, it's brought out, and we see this other places in Scripture that, 
that we might know about it, that we might understand it, and especially that we might expect it in our lives. Uh, because for every believer, every true believer in Christ, this is part of your experience in this world. It takes different forms, but this is part of your uh, experience. And so all that we're seeing here now that we're going to read about this morning uh, is an application, really, of Jesus' teaching that we see in his own life and ministry and that of others. Now, we're going to be reading about two accounts this morning uh, that are in close succession, it, it appears, to one another. The first is about Jesus' own experience when he returns to his hometown. His hometown, the place in which he grew up, Nazareth. I think many of us here can probably think about that experience. Having left home, I certainly can. Having left home, uh, my parents remained there in Brevard. Left home, did many things. Felt like I went out and saw the world. Uh, I, was, I was eventually out in California for a long time and then uh, uh, periodically would, would come back. And every time I came back to the hometown, it, it was a little strange because I was in this place where the people, I, I grew up there, the people knew me, and yet I felt like I was a different person. And this is the type of account that we, we have here with the Lord Jesus as he returns. Uh, the second account that we have is, begins in chapter 14. It, it's centered around King Herod's paranoid belief that Jesus is actually John the Baptist come back to life. Uh, and it, it does come out of fear. Uh, but then Matthew uses this, as do the other gospel writers, to give us the background. What happened with John the Baptist? And it's not a real pretty picture, but it helps us uh, as we look at the persecution that he faced and that Christians do and will face in this world. So again, uh, Matthew chapter 13, I'll begin in verse 53 reading, and we'll read uh, chapter 14 through verse 12, two accounts. This is God's Word. And when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there. And coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished. And they said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his, Mary, his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. Chapter 14, at that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus, and he said to his servants, This is John the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. And though he, Herod, wanted to put him to death, he feared the people because they held him to be a prophet. 
But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod so that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Prompted by her mother, she said, Give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. And the king was sorry. But because of his oaths and his guests, he commanded it to be given. He sent and had John beheaded in the prison. And his head was brought on a platter and was given to the girl. And she brought it to her mother. And his disciples came and took the body and buried it. And they went and told Jesus. Please join me in a word of prayer. Father, this, uh, this passage brings out uh, the reality that, that we know that is here in this world uh, and yet a reality that uh, is not easy. Uh, it often brings up great challenges. And so we need your help. And we know that you have given these things that we might see and understand. And so we pray for your help to do just that this morning. We pray for your Holy Spirit to work upon our, our hearts and our minds to bring that understanding that we need uh, to live as those who are dedicated to you and belong to you. Uh, we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. You know, we, we read about it earlier. It was actually in our, uh, our confession of, uh, of affirmation of our, our faith. We we read that there will be tribulation in this world. And, uh, you know, I, that's a passage. It's, it's just one verse there. Jesus saying there will be tribulation in this world. He's, he's telling it to his disciples to uh, help them, to uh, prepare them. Uh, and we can use this with one another and, and speak about when somebody's going through a difficult thing. Uh, task, you know, th- there is tribulation. We know about this. Uh, there will be tribulation in this world. Um, and those words, they are true because of the brokenness and the sin that exists in this world. But they're also true in a much more pernicious sense because there, there is truly an entire kingdom that is actively against us. If we are part of, of God's kingdom... There's this entire kingdom that is actively working against us, seeking our downfall. Now, uh, that sounds perhaps a little radical, but that's what we receive uh, from God's Word when we speak about these spiritual kingdoms. You know, sometimes when you uh, think about or or see coverage of the the war in Ukraine, uh, you may hear commentators talk about the two opposing sides uh, as being you know, powers, great powers, even world powers. Uh, now, in my experience, they usually don't go much further than that uh, in to digging into what, what they're referring to there, but they're, it's clearly not referring to Ukraine and Russia merely. Uh, we see and we know in the news coverage that uh, the U.S. And, and, and NATO countries are actively providing weapons and expertise and intelligence and uh, all types of materials, financial aid, uh, goods and services uh, to Ukraine. Uh, And then on the other side, we see that Russia has become more and more aligned with 
Iran, and to some extent with China, and maybe even North Korea, and perhaps others as well. Uh, so we see this collaboration economically and, and militarily, uh, but what's rarely spoken about is what's underneath all of this, that it's not just, and it becomes clear to look at, it's not just land that we're talking about, uh, but there is a, a way of life, a way of seeing and understanding things, a, a type of governance, uh, the exercise of freedoms or lack thereof. And so the people that are involved see these things as being at stake. And so it's not just one country encroaching on another's uh, territory, as it's often kind of spoken of, but this is, it is, in a sense, a clash of worldwide kingdoms. And that's, that's why I, I think there's, there's very little appetite, if you look at it, very little appetite for uh, coming together and dialoguing and uh, compromising. Uh, it's because, in, in a sense, there, there are things that are being dealt with where some would say there is no compromise that will work. Um, one thing we can say about the conflict, though, is that uh, both on the side of Ukraine and Russia, there is great suffering, and there has been a lot of loss of, of life on both sides. Even for the civilian population, uh, far away from the, the front lines, there is inconvenience for some, but hardship and, and suffering, loss of loved ones uh, as well. Now, this, of course, is nothing new. This is always going to be true. Anytime there is a, a, a clash of two kingdoms like that, which are opposed to each other, especially kingdoms for which compromise is completely unacceptable. Uh, the result is going to be tribulation. And you know, that's exactly what Jesus said in, in John 16, isn't it? Uh, he was speaking about the clash between two great spiritual kingdoms in this world, uh, but spiritual. Now, in another place, I, I, yeah, I think he goes further and he draws this out further. This is, this is Jesus. This is John chapter 15, uh, and he's talking to his disciples. He, he, he says, John chapter 15, verse 18, he says, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. He, he's, he's saying that to encourage them. Uh, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. Think about that statement. If you were of the world, you'd be fine. You wouldn't be facing the things that you will face, the things that you are facing. Uh, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Now, you, you might say, well, Jesus, isn't that a little bit extreme? A little bit over the top? And the answer is no, it's not. Uh, Jesus was just expressing reality. Uh, and he was saying these things to his disciples and to us so that they would know, so that we would know, if you're a Christian, this is going to be your experience and so that you will take heed and, and prepare. Now, think about it this way. If 
If you ever pray along these lines, uh, Thy kingdom come. And that's, that's part of the Lord's Prayer. That's what He has, has commanded us to pray. Not necessarily the exact words, but in that form, Thy kingdom come. Well, think about what we're praying. We're praying that His kingdom would more and more come into this world, that He would use us, perhaps, uh, as instruments to help facilitate that, that others around us uh, would more and more be engaged in the kingdom and therefore it would enlarge and it would grow. Thy kingdom come. But do you know that when you're praying that prayer, that what you're asking will bring tribulation. It will bring suffering, perhaps into your life, into the lives of others. That doesn't mean that you cease praying in that way. Uh, but what it does mean is that you need to recognize that reality, uh, that this is the nature of life as a Christian. Now, you may at some point, maybe today, but at some point, be on the front lines of that battle. Uh, that's often missionaries that we see in, in other countries or those who live in, in certain places uh, by the nature of where they live as Christians uh, they are on the front lines. There are others who may live a little further back, but either way, your experience will, in different ways, it will involve this existential clash between these two kingdoms. I say existential because it's going to continue. It's not going to just end. And so, sort of like someone living in Ukraine today. You know, they know that they will be affected, that they have been affected, maybe that they have been sent to the front lines, uh, or that a loved one has been. Or They know these things. They know to expect them. And so what do they do? They prepare for them. What does Jesus call for us to do? To recognize, to see it, to prepare for this reality. The problem is that so often when this happens, and we face tribulation in this world, as a result of this, so often we're, we're surprised. We're thrown off. We shake our heads and say, where did that come from? I didn't expect that. Why, why did he just lash out at me with such great anger? Or, you know, th those neighbors of mine, when they first came and, and moved in, we were able to have such good time spending time together, but now, you know, they, they won't certainly come over for dinner, and they just seem to be uh, angry and, and antagonistic toward me. Uh, or she doesn't seem to like me very much. You know, why this hostility that's there? Now, this is not always because of this kingdom clash, and we've got to understand that. We don't want to go looking to invent uh, a conflict when it's not there, to trace it to the wrong place. But we need to recognize this is going to happen in this world. And when we experience these things, if we're not expecting them, what is our tendency going to be? What is our temptation going to be? It's often going to be to strike back in kind, uh, perhaps with anger, maybe to, to withdraw, uh, maybe just to uh, disregard that person and say, you know, they're just a terrible person. Uh, but what a difference it makes when you know that these are the tactics that the enemy uses, that the enemy employs. And therefore, 
to know that there will be tribulation, to know that the Lord has provided for me to prepare for it, not to be thrown off, not to be surprised, but to continue through it. Now, we're going to look at these two accounts uh, um, during Jesus' ministry, and, and through them, I think we're helped in seeing where and how we should expect this, this kind of rejection uh, and hatred, vitriol to come from. Uh, not so that we can avoid it, but so that we're not surprised by it and so that we become useful to the Lord through it as well. Uh, so one, uh, just a couple of, couple of ways that we see it. One with each account here, expect rejection. Expect rejection from the inside. And the other one, expect rejection from the outside. So first of all, expect rejection from the inside. This, this is the one that really, in a sense, hurts uh, uh, an extra amount because you know those who are in our circle, those whom we have come to know, come to love, come to spend time with, that we've grown up with, that we've been closest with, uh, even if we may have our differences at times, we still expect that they will be there for us. But in truth, this is the place, Jesus says, where ministry is often the most difficult, where rejection is often the most prevalent. You know, after uh, Jesus finished teaching, he went, it says, from where he was, he was on the Sea of Galilee, and he went to Nazareth, where he had grown up, about 16 miles or so. Um, and assuming this, that in the gospel accounts, that this, this is always the same account, that Matthew, Mark, and Luke have this account in them, assuming that it's all, all the same account. This is the only time that's recorded during his ministry when he returns to his hometown of Nazareth. Now, uh, Nazareth would have been a, a small village. Uh, most that have researched it have said, you know, between maybe 200 and up to maybe 1,500, but still a small village. Uh, and the synagogue that Jesus went to here uh, you can you can still go uh, and see the remains, we believe, of, of synagogue uh, there. But this synagogue would have been the same one, must have been, that he grew up in, going week after week. Uh, and and therefore, in this town and in in the synagogue, especially, he and his family would have been known. You know, I uh, I. Grew up in Brevard, attended a, a good-sized Methodist church uh, growing up. Uh, and, and, and I know, I know that if I went there today, same church buildings there, um, it's been almost 40 years, that's a long time, 40 years since I left there uh, and, and went away. Uh, my parents had remained there. Uh, but there'd still be some who knew me from the time I had diapers on uh, and, and growing up. Uh, and that affects the way they would look at me and view me. These people had known Jesus. They had known his family. Over many years, they, they had known him as just one of, uh, one of the sons of the carpenter, Joseph. Uh, and they still knew Jesus' brothers by, by name, James and Joseph and, and, and Simeon or Simon and Judas. Uh, and it seems that his sisters, from what they 
uh, say that they, they still live in the same, uh, same place. You know, are not all his sisters still with us? Jesus was familiar to them. You know, maybe somebody else from a big city who might come in, they, they would, you know, see him differently. But for Jesus, no, he wasn't anything special. And so when he taught as a rabbi, but not just as a rabbi, much more than that, they were skeptical. But don't think for a moment that they didn't see in Jesus and hear in Jesus the same things that others did. Uh, In verse 54, it says that when he taught them in their synagogue, they were astonished. And they said, where did this man get this wisdom and and these mighty works? You know, that word astonished means uh, to be filled with amazement to, to the point of being overwhelmed. They recognized, as we see in other accounts, that Jesus spoke with a true authority, not as uh, one of their scribes. And you know, in Luke's account, it's a beautiful picture. Jesus reads out of the Old Testament, out of Isaiah 61, and he applies that to himself. That prophecy speaking of himself as the Messiah. And, and he did do some mighty works there, but the people of Nazareth couldn't get past this. He's just a local boy. They couldn't see. And therefore, it says, verse 57, and they took offense at him. Uh, that word offense in, in the Greek, it's, it's uh, the root for our word scandalous. Uh, it means they, 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 they saw him, they heard from him. It was scandalous. They, they couldn't bear it, what they were hearing from him. So they rejected him outright. They repelled him. They were angered at him. Uh, he was an affront to them. You know, God's Word has an inherent authority. And it has an inherent authority because of what it is. And when we bring that Word in some form, whatever it is, to other people, even when it's out of a, a heart of, of love for the people that are the hearers and a desire that they would know this kingdom and this king for themselves. But what we're doing is we're making ourselves open for rejection, to becoming an offense to them, as we see here, to, be, to being a, a target for their hostility. Uh, and their bitterness. You know, we know that, right? We know that kind of inherently with God's authoritative word. But the place we often don't expect it is amongst those who know us, who we've come to know well, and especially those who may have even come to to know His word, or apparently so, uh, who are familiar with, with us, and they're familiar with it. You know, that often comes to us as being completely unexpected. And, and we might be in a place where we can't figure out why. Uh, you know, whether it's with those within the church or within our own family or others that we become close with. Let me ask you, do you think Jesus was surprised by what happened here? Was he caught off guard? Did it deter him from the work that he was doing to, to move on and to share the gospel. You know, we, 
We can see clearly the answer to that. He, he gives us a principle here. It's something that he knew. He said, a prophet. In other words, he's talking general terms, one who brings God's word, but specific terms, him, Jesus, as the prophet. A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown, in his own household. Jesus wasn't caught off guard. Uh, he knew that this familiarity that the people had with him and perhaps with uh, the, the word that he was sharing, the Jewish background, that it would be a contempt. It would breed a contempt for him. And we often say, this is a phrase, familiarity breeds contempt. And that's what he experienced when he came into this town with authority and with a message that left no room for personal pride. And again, that's what this is about. Uh, it's about those, maybe in a family, often within the church, who have become comfortable in their pride. And they, they've adapted, perhaps over many years, uh, a view of, of Christianity that permits pride. That may even support it and uphold it. Uh, there is a familiarity there, uh, and they're at home with their own adaptation of Christ and of His message. But it's bound to happen that anywhere that the gospel is rightly preached and rightly practiced, that that pride will be challenged by God's Word. And you might be the vehicle that's bringing that Word in whatever means. Uh, and it could be through your words. It could be through your actions that's bringing that word uh, to someone else. So I just say be prepared because there may be a strong response against it, a vehement response. And so all of a sudden, you went from being maybe on, on the back lines to being on the front lines of this clash between two kingdoms. It's something that we know is going to happen. And so the Lord, the message that we receive is don't be surprised. Don't be caught off guard. Expect it. Uh, but how are we to respond to it? Consider the mindset of, of someone who is engaged in a battle, and they know that they're engaged in a battle. Think about in Ukraine, I don't know, maybe a, a soldier that's fighting for Bakhmut, uh, and, and he's engaged in the fight. What does he know? knows that he needs to expect incoming fire. He knows that perhaps even that someone close to him may actually have a heart and mind that's, that's aligned with the other side. He, he, he's in the battle. He's become prepared. He's, he's set himself together. He has what he needs uh, in order to fight that battle. Uh, one place that really helps us with that in Scripture. That is Ephesians chapter 6, you know, where Paul says, Finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Now notice just in those words, stand against the schemes of the devil. What do we so often do? We point to the other person and you know, it's them, it's a bad apple, it's, it's this situation. But often, isn't it, if we really step back and could see the picture, we're constantly engaged in a spiritual battle. And we need to be able to see things uh, in that way. Uh, 
He says that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil, not just against other people. And so that, that, that brings it into a whole new realm. And then he goes on to say, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Don't think that that's our number one uh, place in which we wrestle. And yet, isn't it often that the place where we're struggling, perhaps the most, there, there's somebody else or, or somebody in our family or some other group uh, that we're really struggling with, but he brings it home. He says, this is against the rulers, the authorities, the cosmic powers over this present darkness, spiritual forces of evil. Uh, it's, it's this battle of realms, and he has engaged us in it by intent. We're on the front lines often. So what do we do? Take up the whole armor of God. The belt of truth. We can see, we can know, we can understand what the truth is. Uh, we can look around us and, and be able to kind of stand back and understand what the battle is about, what's going on inside of us, what's going on inside of others, right? Isn't that what we, we need, the belt of truth? Put on the breastplate of righteousness. Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. When we are following the Lord, when we're walking in His ways, obedience to Him, we're so much more prepared for the battle that we must fight uh, in this world. And he says, uh, having shoes for your feet, put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. And in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith by which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. When we're convicted inside, we know the Lord. We're walking in His ways. We know what we're about. We've got faith in Christ. We know our own weakness, but we know His strength. What does it say? You will extinguish all the darts, the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation, that which we look forward to, and know that is ours, know that is ours today, know that will be ours in the future. Uh, and we live out of that hope. And then finally, the sword of the Spirit which is the Word of God. Uh, uh, again, we've got to have this, whether it's through the preaching of the Word, through our experience on a daily basis, as a family gathering around this, we must have the Word of God. Notice the only offensive weapon, uh, it's often pointed out uh, in uh, this group of weapons. I said finally, but there's one more thing. Praying at all times in the Spirit. We talked about this at uh, Praise and Prayer on Wednesday. Uh, this sense of always being in communion with our God, always knowing that He's there present. You know, it's, it's almost like being in, on the battlefield and you've got this, this constant line of communication uh, with the commander. Uh, and he's telling you exactly what's happening, telling you uh, how to move, and he's strengthening you and encouraging you. This is what we need in order to engage in the battle. This is, this is the preparation that is needed, and we have the Spirit at work within us, providing us with that ability to make use of all these weapons. So that's what we expect, right? Rejection from those who are close to us. But also, we must expect rejection from those on the outside. And we get this very difficult account here uh, with John the Baptist. You know, I, I think this is what we most often think about, perhaps, when we think about a clash between these two 
uh, world kingdoms. We think about persecution and rejection and, and hatred uh, from those who don't know the Lord at all and often those who don't even pretend to know the Lord. Uh, and it's very true. It is a reality in this world. Yet, it's also true that the Lord has given us all that we need to be prepared for this. And so, the account of, of John the Baptist, beginning in uh, chapter 14. Now, John the Baptist, if you think back, he's someone who we've, we've been able to get to know pretty well. More than just about anybody else in the New Testament. Uh, we, we, we knew about him. If you look back to the Old Testament, uh, there, there are prophecies about his coming. And then right there at the beginning of the New Testament, the, the birth narratives right alongside of Jesus, uh, you, you've got this understanding of who his parents were, what they were being called to, what he was going to be called to. You know, we kind of get to know John the Baptist, and we learn about him and his ministry. Uh, and we see him as he goes before Jesus as a herald. You know, many of John the Baptist's disciples became Jesus' disciples. And then he is the one who baptizes Jesus. Uh, we, we see him fully dedicated to the Lord, dedicated to his purposes. Uh, he is the preacher that calls people to repentance. But he's also the man who experiences, apart from the Lord Jesus himself, perhaps almost the most gruesome and difficult death, at least visually speaking, of anyone in Scripture. You know, the first two verses we've got here, they're, they're just a follow-on uh, from the prior event. It says, at that time, and it speaks about Herod. Uh, and uh, in these two verses, uh, we see that Herod had come to a belief that John the Baptist, or that Jesus was John the Baptist kind of reincarnated, come back to life. And it, it doesn't make a lot of sense when you really think it through because both the men lived at the same time. Uh, yeah, this was his belief, and it was coming out of guilt that was at work within him, this, this kind of superstitious uh, belief. And then we get the background as to why that guilt was there. Uh, you know, Herod's conscience clearly was bothering him because of what he had done or had done to John the Baptist. And so we get this uh, account, and, and clearly through and through we can see Herod was not a believer. Uh, Herod was not even, a, 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 he didn't even hold to the quote-unquote Jewish faith of the day. In the rest of this account, we get this background of what happened to John the Baptist. And the, the background to all of it really came out of an affair that Herod had with his brother's wife. His brother's wife was Herodias. His brother was Philip. Uh, and they had an affair, and out of that they were married. Uh, Herodias was actually his niece, just to kind of add to the different layers there. Um, and this took place... Uh, the events with John the Baptist took place because after that happened, after the affair, uh, John the Baptist made a statement, very directly statement, direct statement out of God's law. And he, he, he said, this is wrong, this marriage. Uh, it's not lawful for you to have her. Now, we do see in this account that uh, Herod wanted John the Baptist killed. 
But also we see his conscience being pulled, and he was afraid to, because the people considered that John the Baptist was, was a prophet. And so, so he, he couldn't do it. He couldn't bring himself to do it. But Herodias didn't have any problem with that. And we've got the event when Herodias, her daughter, was dancing before King Herod, and, and Herod loved her dance and uh, loved that it was before all the people there, and he said, uh, I, I will give to you of my kingdom. One, one place he says, half the kingdom. Probably didn't mean that literally, uh, but that's what he said. And, and then, so the, the young girl went to her mother and asked, well, what should I ask for? And Herodias said, well, seems without hesitation, uh, John the Baptist's head. We get this account. She went to Herod and she said, Give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. Now, very clearly, Matthew is giving us this, this account, this gruesome picture intentionally. You know, he could have just used the word, then Herod beheaded John the Baptist. And he just left out the rest of the description. But he doesn't do that. And he walks us through and he said... This was requested by the mother. John the Baptist's head, then it was removed in prison. It was brought on a platter. It was given to the young girl and then brought to her mother. And so as you, as you walk through this, it, it can implant in your mind just horrific images of what had happened. And we get a real sense of the deep depravity of this whole thing. And it seems here that that's, that's what Matthew, again, he could have left that out, but that's what he's trying to convey, exactly what happened, the truth, the reality. And this is a picture of persecution, persecution that, that does and can happen in this world. You know, when you're interacting with unbelievers, with those outside of the faith, you got to realize, you got to understand that there are two completely different worldviews at work, and they are directly opposed to each other. Now, of course, when we do that, we're not, we're not to try to antagonize others. You know, we're not to, to intentionally try to take the Bible and, and beat someone over the head with it. But the truth is that these two kingdoms are irreconcilable. Uh, in their very nature. In 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 6, Jesus, when he's talking about don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers, he says this, for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? You know, the answer here is none. None whatsoever. There's no partnership. There's no fellowship. There's no compromise. No coming together to make things work. What does that mean? It means one thing. It means there will be conflict. It means there will be persecution. You know, I've often wondered what I would do if faced with this. What would each of us do if faced with the same demand that faced many of those in in the very early church, first few hundred years uh, after Christ? We know the Roman Empire was uh, the one in in rule uh, and we see that the people were demanded to show obedience, but not just obedience. It was, it was a step further. It was really worship to the emperor. 
And so they would have this image of the emperor that was, was all over. And the people had to bow to the image to show their submission, complete heart and mind to the emperor. And what was told the Christians was this. Instead of bowing to this, we know you may have a problem with that. All you have to do is take a pinch of incense, one pinch, and throw it in the fire that's right next to the image. A pinch of incense and your life will be spared. And you will be able to go about and will be appreciated as wonderful citizens of this kingdom. Now some Christians did it. Many Christians refused. And they were thrown into the lion's den. They were killed in a, in a myriad of other ways. Now the question, if you were faced with that, what would you do? Now, like I said, I, I've considered that question. That's, that's a hard one because it, it's one we really can't truly finally answer unless this were placed before us at, at, at this time or at some point. But what matters is not only what we would do then at that point, it's what we do now. You know, the Lord has called us to be prepared. The Lord has called us to recognize these things, recognize this reality, and live our lives out of this spiritual reality. There's a, there's a place in, uh, in 1 Peter. You know, Peter was, was addressing a lot of this kind of thing because it was during a time when the, the, the people, Christians, were facing a lot of persecution. And here's what Peter said. Uh, he said, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. Look at, the, look at how he, he characterizes it. This is not just something you're going through. The Lord is doing something through this to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Now, this is nothing strange. This is that which you need to expect. And so continue forward day after day, expecting this very thing to occur, doing what? Looking to the Lord. Making use of what? All of the armor of God that we talked about earlier. And he goes on to say, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. Jesus suffered upon the cross. He died for us. And now we are called in this life to suffer as well, but not like we would have suffered before apart from God, because that would have been meaningless but today, with all that He has equipped us with, and with the glories that are ahead of us, uh, Peter goes on to say, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. And that's the key, isn't it? That when we belong to the Lord, when we are His, we are a part of His kingdom. He's given that our minds and our hearts are engaged with His. We see things in the same way that, that He does. We're told we're even able to have the mind of Christ. The Holy Spirit provides for us through and through, and we are able to continue forward to expect this in this life, in this world, whether it's external or internal. Uh, we're able to expect this, and we're able to 
persevere through it and even rejoice as we go through it, uh, knowing that when His glory is revealed, we will rejoice together with Him. And so He does. He calls us to be prepared. And He calls us to have eyes that are open. Please join me in prayer. Lord, we, we thank You this morning as, as we just see directly out of Your Word the, the realities that are there, uh, the different ways that we may face rejection, difficulty, suffering uh, in this world because of these two different kingdoms. Thank You, Lord, that we are able to have assurance through and through that we are a part of this one kingdom, the kingdom of God. And that as we read earlier in Psalm 2, that this is the kingdom that will continue on forever to ultimate and final victory. Help us to know that inside. Help us to have this comfort of being together with you, walking with you. And and we do pray uh, that you would uh, help us in that process of becoming equipped uh, to do battle. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.